were some handouts that were given tonight. I forgot to click the old uh, two-sided button, so <laughs> Marilyn Oman saved me and uh, stapled the two separate sheets together. Um, but is anybody in need of a handout tonight? Lots of blanks as we go through, and I want to make sure that you have that, if that helps you follow along. Thank you, men, for being ready, but it looks like everybody, you did your job and did it well, so thank you guys. It was Dave, yeah. <laughs> We're going to be in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians this evening. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The goal tonight is going to get through probably the most... I hate to say, use the word confusing. I mean, the Word of God is never confusing, but maybe the most difficult passage in this book to understand as Paul dives into um, deeper teaching into the second coming of Christ. And so we'll try to get through it, and I'm sure I will not be able to answer all your questions, either because of time or because I don't know the answers to all of these questions, but I'll try to present some of the um, the main teachings that are not only Paul is trying to get across, but major, what most theologians and scholars and commentators would say um, would be the big issues that Paul's hitting here. And so um, we'll try to walk through this verse by verse. But before we get to our passage um, this evening, it's always good for us to review where we've been so that we can uh, make sure that we fit this teaching and this section of Scripture, chapter 2, into what Paul has already taught. So back in chapter 1, Paul begins with his greeting. And we looked there. That Paul was reminding the church of those who played an integral part in both the planting and the initial shepherding and pastoring of this church in Thessalonica. That would be Paul, that would be Silas, and that would be Timothy. And then he roots them in their position being in God their Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why you're a true church. You've been engrafted and united to God. And then he says that union with God then makes you a continual recipient of the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he vertically thanks God for his work in this church's life. Then he also has a horizontal commendation. All the other churches that he comes in contact with, he's commending to them, this Thessalonican church, that their faith in God is growing under intense persecution as well as their love for one another. And then last week we looked at his reminder to them that God is a holy and righteous judge. And that there were two main evidences of God's righteous judgment. One was the justice that he was going to bring to his people. And that was in light of, number two, the judgment that he was going to bring upon those who were afflicting them and persecuting them. Those who, remember, didn't know God and those who did not obey the gospel. And then he prays for them and gives us a model prayer. That God, through his grace and through his power, would take all the resolutions that they were making, all of the, the good resolves that they were making, and that God, through his power and through his grace, would turn them from inward resolutions to outward works of faith. And this would ultimately result in Christ being glorified in them, and them being glorified in Christ. And the end goal of all this work that God was doing in and through them was so that they would be worthy of the kingdom of God, worthy of their calling. Because he has worked in and through them according to his grace. He's justified them. He's sanctifying them. Mainly through, at this point, the tool of suffering. Then finally, he will glorify them in a second coming. And so that brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Allow me to read those for us before we dive into them. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12. Paul continues after his prayer. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes 
opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would allow us tonight once again to approach your word with a humble attitude, asking for your spirit to do the work to illuminate these truths in our hearts and in our minds, not just to fill our heads with knowledge, but to change our lives, and that the truths we look at today concerning the glorious hope that we have, that Jesus Christ is coming back, and he will vindicate all wrongs. He will finally glorify us and unite us with our glorified bodies, where we will be with him forever. Pray that that would fuel us to live in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you've placed on our lives here on earth. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, let's just work through this kind of verse by verse. So, right there in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and the beginning part of chapter uh, verse 2, Paul gives an urgent request. Paul is here, as he always is. He's wearing his pastor shepherd heart on his shirt sleeves. And he turns now to exhort these Thessalonian believers. It's a bit of a turn in his letter. And because he was receiving good reports for the most part about how, again, their faith is increasing, their love is growing, but he continued to hear that they were hearing wrong teaching about Christ's second coming. But they weren't just hearing it and being aware of it, but it was infecting them internally and affecting them outwardly. And so he pleads with them. He begs them to do something. And so his earnest request for them, Thessalonian believers, do not be quickly shaken in mind and don't be alarmed. You see, because they were not only hearing but listening to this false teaching, they became, and the the Greek word here helps us understand that, they were becoming like ships that were being unmoored from their dock. And here the dock is the security of Christ's second coming and the hope that that should have been bringing them and the peace that that should have been bringing them in the midst of this persecution. But that security was now being taken away because they were listening to these false teachers. And so they're like a ship that's become unmoored and is now being tossed by storms and winds and waves. And it was causing internal agitation, being shaken in their mind. But it was also manifesting itself in emotional upheaval. And I think we can understand why. If the one blessed hope that these dear church folks had in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, was being taught that it really wasn't a hope at all. That these false teachers were saying, Jesus has already come. They were effectively telling these believers under intense persecution that This is about as good as it gets for you guys. Jesus already came. You missed the boat. So then where would their hope lie? And as a pastor, Paul is adamant that they get this doctrine right. 
Not so they can win an argument or fill out a chart or fill their head with knowledge, but so that they can experience true hope and true peace in the middle of all of these storms of persecution and suffering. He wanted to remind them that, no, they are wrong. The best is still yet to come. Christ is bringing justice for you and judgment on your enemies. And that moves us to the second part of verse 2 and following. Which answers the question, how were these false teachers able to cause such agitation? How were they able to get a foothold in this church so that they began to listen to them and to believe them and then cause this upheaval? Well, there are three ways that these false teachers were claiming to have this knowledge that Jesus has already come. Now, we in this day and age, we're not so good at it, but most of us are, you know, if somebody claims something, we want to see the sources. We want to know that there are credible sources. But unfortunately, even in our day of just having an influx of information, whether it's via social media or the 24-7 news network, that there's always something new coming across the board. There's always somebody claiming something. And if we're not careful to check out sources and make sure what we're hearing is credible, we can easily become agitated as well. So these false teachers knew that. And they said they're going to probably check sources, so we want to make sure that what we say has some kind of backing. And so what ways were they able to, in one way, dupe this church and say what we're teaching is actually correct? Well, the first one was saying that they, Paul's saying, don't pay attention to what they're saying if somebody comes with this false teaching in spirit. These false teachers were claiming direct knowledge from some sort of supernatural source. Unfortunately, these teachers were probably aware of what these church people would be looking out for. They're probably even claiming that this false teaching was coming directly from the Holy Spirit. That somehow he, he gave them this secret knowledge that Jesus had already come. Now, what should have these believers actually done instead of imbibing this and allow it to agitate them? As we're instructed in 1 John chapter 4, they should have tested these spirits. They should have scrutinized the teaching. They should have seen if what they're teaching is aligning with the apostolic authoritative teaching that they received from Paul and probably even from Silas and Timothy. In fact, they already had a letter, didn't they? <laughs> Helping them begin to understand this, this doctrine of the second coming. They already had Paul's first letter to them in 1 Thessalonians. So they should have held up this false teaching to the light of what they already had. So Paul here is once again urging them to exercise discernment. They're also spreading this false teaching. They weren't just claiming to have it, but they were actually spreading this false teaching through speech. And that basically covers any form of oral communication. And because the church is the one being agitated, very easily this could have been infiltrating and coming from within the church. It could have been a teacher. It could have been coming even from the pulpit. Again, proves the necessity of testing even sermons and other forms of oral communication that we hear of someone claiming to be teaching the Word of God to make sure that it aligns with what God has already clearly taught in Scripture. And lastly, they seem to even be claiming to have epistles or letters that they were attributing from the pen of Paul, possibly even Silas and Timothy. They're basically saying to the the church, these men that you trust, especially Paul, are writing letters and they're affirming what we're teaching, that Jesus Christ has already come. And I can only imagine the, the righteous anger that Paul was probably feeling at this moment. Because his name, as their church planting pastor, was now being attached to truths, truth claims I should say, that directly opposed what he'd already taught them. And so his name is being invoked. 
And so there are these three ways that these false teachers got a foothold in the door of the church because they were backing their claims with what they said was authority through spirits and speech and letters. So Paul obviously is hearing these things because he's writing about them. Even though he's not there, he's getting these reports. He's hearing of this dear church that's being unmoored from the security and the peace that they should have been resting in because they should have had the hope that Christ is coming. So he exhorts, he admonishes them, don't believe it. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He now moves on and gives them evidence that Christ has not come back yet. He says, I don't want to just say, stop believing it, but I want now to bolster you and further support this doctrine of Christ's second coming with some extra teaching so that you have more things to hold up to the light of these false teachers to see if what they're saying is true or false. And here again, we're reminded that right right doctrine is going to lead to right living. False teaching will lead to confusion and dissettlement in our hearts. So Paul says, I'm going to give you two evidences that Christ has not come back yet. The first, the rebellion must happen. We'll talk about that for a little bit. And then also, the coming, or the revelation, of the man of lawlessness. And he says, before Christ comes back, the rebellion comes first. Now, in in modern usage, the word that Paul uses for rebellion here can speak to any kind of political or military pushback against some kind of established authority. How we would typically think of a rebellion from a political or a military standpoint. But most of the New Testament writers, when they would use this word for rebellion, would use it in more of the spiritual sense. That he's talking about man's inward and then outward, those who are unconverted, rebellion against the authority of God in their lives and in this world. The fact that Paul uses here in the Greek a definite article, he says, the rebellion leads us to believe, and here's where we, we, we don't have a clear picture of everything here. And that was intentional. We don't necessarily understand why, um, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we don't have the, a clear, crystal clear picture of what Paul is talking about here. But because he used a definite article, he seems to be pointing to a specific event, and probably an event that he had already taught these Thessalonian believers about before. But he doesn't give us any further explanation other than the rebellion. But we can take things from other portions of scripture and and try to not necessarily fill in a blank, but try to understand what he's talking about here. We know from many of Paul's other writings and even in the Gospels, the writing of John as well, that unconverted men and women, unconverted people, will continue to rebel against God's authority until Christ's return. In fact, he already said that in chapter 1. He said, yes, you're going to continue to suffer and endure persecution until Christ comes back to bring that final vindication. So, him saying this rebellion could refer to just the continuation of anybody who's outside of the union with Christ rebelling against the authority of God because that's all they know how to do. They could also refer to a larger, maybe more, more, more crystallized, final, last-ditch effort of Satan himself and his workers to overthrow God's authority. One last opportunity to try to do that. And most likely, that is what Paul would be referring to here, which ties into other passages of Scripture like Matthew 24, 10, his instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3, 2 Timothy 3 and 4 as well, where he says things are going to continue to wax worse and worse. But before we want to dive in, and I'm actually not going to go there, sorry to disappoint you, but before we try to say, all right, I'm going to leave here with a crystal clear definition of the rebellion, we need to take a step back. And we need to understand that when we're looking at a book like 2 Thessalonians, we have to take this in context. What's the overall goal of what Paul is trying to teach these believers? Ultimately, 
Paul seeking to urgently remind his flock, Christ has not come. That's the big idea. This is wrong teaching. Christ has not come yet. And one way that you guys are going to know that, and us as well, is that the second advent, the second coming of Christ is not going to be missed by anybody. There's going to be crystal clear evidence of all of these things happening before Christ returns. He's basically saying, guys, you're not going to wake up one morning and say, I wonder if Christ came last night. No one is going to have that question. Big events will happen preceding it, including this rebellion. It also means we're not to speculate every time something big happens in the news to try to fill out a chart as to whether or not, is this the rebellion? No, maybe this is the rebellion, or maybe this is the rebellion. But rather, the overall goal that Paul's trying to drive home here is saying, you're not going to miss the second coming. And because you haven't missed it and won't miss it, it's supposed to be your blessed hope. So take comfort in the midst of all of these difficulties that you're in the middle of. And realize the best is yet to come. And don't fear that somehow you're going to or have already missed the second coming of Christ. So that's kind of the first activity that he says. You're not going to miss it because the rebellion will happen. And then there's going to be this revelation of this man of lawlessness. Another arena where people want to speculate and desire some kind of exact clarity. But again, that doesn't seem to be the main point of why Paul brings this man up in this passage. Broader context again, Paul's reassuring the Thessalonians that Christ has not come because very obvious signs that must precede his second coming haven't happened. And one of those things is the revelation of this man of lawlessness. And if you can put yourself in, in their shoes and you're unrolling the scroll and you read it for the first time and you get there in that verse, the day will not come, verse 3, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Man, that must have invoked some kind of fear, right? But rather, even if when they came across that sentence and as the reader is publicly reading that, even if there was some initial fear right there, Paul immediately quells that fear. Because he tells them that this man of lawlessness is, in the ESV, is a son of destruction. Now this is the exact same language that Jesus used to describe Judas Iscariot in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 12 where Judas Iscariot is called the son of destruction. Maybe your translation or one that you grew up with calls it him the son of perdition. So I want to stop right there. Judas Iscariot was not this man of lawlessness but I want to make sure that the description of both is the same. And it has to do with the spiritual state of this person. No doubt, this man of lawlessness who's doomed to destruction will not know God. He will not obey the gospel. And so believers take heart. He's already doomed to destruction, just like all the other ones who remain in that state. So Paul makes certain that even though he's saying, you haven't missed the second coming, the rebellion's coming, this man of lawlessness is coming. But be reminded... That even, as we'll see in a few verses, that he does wield some power, he will by no means survive the wrath of God that's coming when Jesus Christ returns. Digging deeper into the text, moving on to verse 4, we should take heed to what Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing. He continues to describe this man of lawlessness and he gives, them th- gives these readers and us three things that set this man apart. Again, this is to be something that no one's going to miss. So what's going to set this man apart so no one will have any questions that this is the man of lawlessness? Well, number one, he opposes and exalts himself against every object of worship. Every so-called God or object of worship. So this is not a man that's merely content with enjoying some kind of political power and authority. But he's going to demand to be the object of both internal affections and outward worship. He will demand to be above everyone and everything 
in their worship. And then the second thing is he talks about this man of lawlessness taking his seat in the temple. Another phrase where good scholars and commentators are going to disagree on what this means. Some would say that this is a particular physical place of worship where he will literally find his throne or his seat. Others would say, no, it's a little bit more metaphorical language that actually intensifies the other two descriptors that are on either side of him taking a seat in worship. So him wanting to be the object of worship and him desiring to be God, claim deity, is a meta- this is a metaphorical term of him actually having a seat in the temple as if he is God. They could both be right. <laughs> a man who's claiming all of this worship for himself, desiring it, I think practical knowledge would say he's going to need some kind of home base of some sort. Quite possibly it could be a place that has been constructed for some kind of religious worship or activity. And so again, I don't have crystal clarity as to exactly what that means. But again, what's Paul reminding us? He's like, you're not going to miss because this is what's going to describe this man. And the other thing that we need to remember is to take all of this in light of the rest of the revelation of Scripture, particularly the promises that are given to God's people, the church. We need to remember that the church is going to be able to withstand the strongest forces that hell will ever be able to throw at it. And the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against the advance of Christ's church through the gospel. But yet this warning of this man of lawlessness is very real. It's very literal. So we should take away some hope, lots of hope actually, that he's going to be under the wrath of God. He will not survive it. The church will survive. The church will advance. But also the warning is that we need to be ever vigilant to guard our doctrine, to faithfully spread the gospel to test spirits and the teachings of every person that claims to speak the name of God. And that's our work, but then we also rest, knowing that every force against the church will ultimately fail. Even the culmination of the rebellion and the revelation of this man of lawlessness, they're doomed to destruction. And this all culminates in his third descriptor here, is that he proclaims himself to be God. He claims deity. And this is certainly just like Satan. (laughs) This is the ultimate rebellion in the face of the true God. Why did Satan fall with all of his angels from heaven? He wanted to be like God. How did the serpent, Satan, tempt Adam and Eve? He went after the character of God. God's withholding something good from you. If you eat this, you're going to be like God. And so, in an act of ultimate rebellion, they took the fruit. And it's going to be the ultimate and final culmination of all of Satan's desires here at the end, right before Christ comes back, that he is once again going to desire to overthrow God forever, and he's going to throw a lot of his forces behind this rebellion and this man of lawlessness. And then Paul kind of takes a breather in verse 5. Kind of the human nature here of Paul, where he, he writes... Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And we could probably read that maybe with a little twinge of frustration. Maybe a little sarcasm. Like, come on, guys. I already told you these things. Maybe a little impatience. But most likely, what he's doing here is he is almost breathlessly writing. Like, these things are just coming to mind, obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, okay, the rebellion's coming. And he kind of, like, leaves some of the details out. So the whole thing here, this whole section, Paul is basically reviewing for them things that he's probably already taught them. And so I think most likely this kind of interjection sentence is Paul's way of just jogging their memory and saying, I I really don't need to keep going into all the detail here because you guys remember the things that I've already taught you. And it 
keeps them from the necessity of going into a lot of greater detail here. But it doesn't stop him. (laughs) He moves forward in in verse 6 and following to continue to build his case. So again, what is he doing? He's saying, don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken by these false teachers claiming authority behind what they're saying. And now I want to build a case for you that Christ has not come. The rebellion hasn't happened. The man of lawlessness has not been revealed. And he's going to continue to build this case as to why Christ has not already come. In verse 6, God is currently restraining the rebellion. And he's also restraining the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And again, commentators are going to take the, the language here. And there's not clarity specifically about what is or who is doing the restraining. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Again, another like, guys, we talked about this. You already know this. Well, Paul, I want to know. <laughs> That's kind of how we feel. But he's, he's not giving extreme clarity here. But I think we can pull out using the rest of Scripture to, to uh, make sure that we, we zero in on a particular truth. Ultimately, none of these future events, the rebellion, the revealing of the man of lawlessness, are outside of the sovereign control of God. Now, the means that God is using to restrain this last rebellion, we could probably point some things out, just in, again, using practical knowledge. It's one of the reasons that there is human government punish evil and to reward good. That's why there's law enforcement. The influence of the church and other and Christian influence in the world is probably being used to restrain the rebellion. So even if we don't know exactly, maybe he's talking about one particular form of government or reminding them that their government is one of the tools that God is using to restrain the rebellion from happening here in Thessalonica. But we must come away realizing that both the current restraint of this evil as well as all the means that are being used to restrain the evil and the future revealing of the evil and this man of lawlessness, all of that is under the umbrella of God's perfect sovereignty. We go to other places in Scripture and know that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, how exactly God ordains all things? We believe that. But how He does that without removing the responsibility of man for sinful actions? And how He has and will continue to bring all things, including evil, To an end for God's glory and for the good of his people is a mystery. But we know that God's counsel will stand and his purposes will be accomplished. So maybe Paul here is speaking in vague terms about some particular means that God is using to restrain this evil. Or maybe he's just reminding them, guys, you know that God is the one restraining evil, ultimately. Ultimately, we must come away with a firm confidence that no matter what the means Paul was talking about, no matter what the means God is using even today to restrain all of this from happening, God is the one who does it, and He ordains the end, and He also ordains the means to that end. And He's the one that will also do the revealing. He will be the one to remove that restraint. Now, In verse 7, he reminds them, although they probably didn't need to be reminded of this point, that the lawlessness is already at work. There is evidence of lawlessness already happening. As Paul would write in 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But Paul's reminding them, It's not as bad as it could be. There is common grace at work. The God is still restraining evil. 
And he also reminds them that none of it is outside of God's control. And again, we have to come back and remember why Paul's writing this. There are things that yet have to happen before Jesus returns. And he writes these things for their comfort. That even the mystery of lawlessness is at work. And he who now restrains it will continue to do so until he's out of the way. But then he says in verse 8, One day God will remove those restraints and he will reveal the lawless one. But again, it's not to bring fear. That seems like it would instill a lot of fear. Doesn't this mean, Paul, that basically the worst of the worst is going to happen when God removes his restraining hand? Yes. Yes. It seems to be the point in the future when the worst of the worst will finally be manifested. But the revelation of the lawless one, his revealing, is for his end. When the man of lawlessness is finally revealed, he's going to die at the breath of Jesus Christ and at just his appearing. Just the breath of Jesus' mouth will kill him and bring all of this rebellion and all of the man of lawlessness's work to nothing just by his appearance. So again, our, our, our time here is not to leave and to try to figure out who the man of lawlessness is. Because guess what? By the time either us or people in the future are revealed that this is the man of lawlessness, he's doomed. <laughs> he's going to die because Christ is going to come back. So this culmination, the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the culmination of Satan's rebellion against God, is actually going to turn out to be God's plan to finally bring all of it to an end. The worst of the worst and the revelation of all of this means that it's ending. The same breath that created all things and that breathed life into man is the same breath that will kill all of his enemies and bring this lawless one to nothing. So Paul's affirming here that the coming... Sorry, I'll give you your blanks. Sorry, let me back up there. Uh oh. Is this it? Um, Is that what you need? The lawless one will be revealed in order to be killed? There we go. Okay. The lawless one will be revealed in order to be killed. Okay, so he continues to build his case. Let's let's move on here. Verse 9. There is some unmistakable activity of the man of lawlessness. We already saw kind of three signs. Remember, seated in the temple, proclaiming to be God, demanding worship. But again, Paul's reminding them and telling them all of this bad stuff that the man of lawlessness is going to bring with him. He's reminding of this because you guys didn't miss it. It's going to be so clear. So it's not to instill fear. It's just to to root them and ground them and bring their ship that has been unmoored and dock it again to the fact that Christ hasn't returned and they still need to have their hope in it. And that's the end of of Paul's building his case. Basically, that's what he's saying. The stuff has to happen before Jesus comes and it hasn't yet. And the reason being is because God is restraining it from happening. But he says when he does remove the restraint, it it will bring with it some unmistakable activity. This man of lawlessness will come as a result of the work of Satan. The result of the activity of Satan. You see that in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So it means that God will use Satan's activity, because he's sovereign over all, to allow this man of lawlessness to come and be revealed. He's also going to come in power. This man will be a primary tool of the devil to try to overthrow the authority of God. And so he'll come in all the power that Satan can muster. He will come with false signs. Just like the true apostles of God performed sign gifts of prophecy and of healing 
and of tongues in order to, why was all that given to them? Because we didn't have the canon of scripture and it was to authorit- it was to authenticate their message that it truly was from God. Same idea here. The activity and the work of the man of lawlessness, he will do things that point to the power under which he is acting. It's going to point to the power of Satan. It will be unmistakable that he's under his influence. So he's coming with false signs. He'll come with wonders. This is people's reaction to the man of lawlessness and all of his signs. They're going to be in awe of him. He will gather a following. He will be, from a human perspective, very powerful and very deceptive. And he will deceive those who are perishing because they do not love the truth. So those don't love the gospel and don't know God will fall under his deception. We have to remember that the powers and the signs and the wonders and the deception will never affect the elect of God. As we've already seen in chapter 1, genuine saving faith is indestructible in the face of suffering, in the, safe, in the face of persecution, even in the face of the revelation and revealing of the man of lawlessness. But those who are perishing, those who have rejected the gospel, will be subjected to this deception. It's because they don't love the truth. It literally means they haven't embraced it. They haven't given it a warm welcome. The gospel has not found a fertile root in their heart. And so, because of their rejection of the gospel... Because they do not love the truth, they'll fall under the deception of the man of lawlessness and bring upon themselves the just wrath of God. And as we close here in verses 11 and 12, Paul's reasoning takes a unique turn. It reminds us that evil does not act independently. Because he just described the man of lawlessness as coming by the activity of Satan... And through that activity, he's going to come with power and false signs and wonders and deception. But then Paul says that is not an independent act. It's not outside of the sphere of the sovereignty of God. In fact, nothing in the universe does, or else God would cease to be sovereign. So just like the restraint of the man of lawlessness... And then the revelation of the man of lawlessness is under the complete control of the God of heaven. So are the consequences of unbelief. As Paul would write in Romans chapter 1, he reminds us that the worst thing that God could ever do is to give us over to what we really want. And that's what he's doing here. He gives up those who refuse to love the truth. He gives them up to the deception of this man of lawlessness. We all have to remember, none of us, has, because of our rebellion before Christ, none of us has any claim on God's mercy, any claim on God's grace. He gives it freely into the praise of his glorious grace because before our eyes, blind eyes were opened to see the beauty of Christ, We were not seeking after God. We were not righteous. We were not doing good. All of our activity was active rebellion against God. So Paul closes his arguments here by reminding them that God will use Satan and his tool, this man of lawlessness, in order to produce the ends of his righteous condemnation of those who reject the gospel, those who have pleasure in unrighteousness, literally those who begin to see evil as good. Again, reflecting back at Romans 1. They not only practice it, they not only approve it, but they celebrate it. And so God gives them over to this deception. And so let me close with a few points of application and then we'll be done. We need to be reminded here as we close. I'll give you the blank, sorry. God uses Satan and the man of lawlessness to condemn those who reject the gospel. So 
points of application. We need to go back to kind of the beginning of this section and reflect once again on the danger of false teaching. Paul, in this letter and practically every other letter that he wrote, gives more time and attention to false teaching and deception happening from within and among the church than the outside influence of the world and or the persecution of the world. Now, he doesn't downplay those other things, but he seems to give much more attention to the extreme reality that false teaching is so easily embraced within the church. He warns over and over again in his writing against those within the church or claiming to speak on behalf of God. Here, even in Paul's time, he's still alive. He's barely removed himself from this church. And false teaching is already coming, and false teaching is already coming in the name of Paul himself. They were claiming to have his letters and his teaching. How much more vigilant do we have to be today? Information travels today not just through letters and word of mouth like they did in Paul's day, but just at the stroke of a keyboard. So pastors, teachers, we need to be constantly held held accountable to be faithful to the word of God in our teaching. We need to use it to equip you as saints to do the work of the ministry. You all need to be ever watchful. You need to search the scriptures. You need to test the spirits. Because again, who's this letter written to? It's not the pastor of the church. It's the church. You. He's writing to you and me. And saying all of us need to be on guard for these things. Because the greatest dangers often come from within. Now, we need to be careful not to become overly critical. Always living in fear or speculation that whoever comes in and teaches is, is, is going to be teaching false doctrine. But really it's a call to be a good student of the word. To study the scriptures on your own. To continually put yourself under the sound teaching of the word. So that we as Trinity Baptist Church become an army of equipped church members. Working side by side with us as your pastors to guard biblical doctrine. Application number two. The final culmination of Satan's rebellion should actually instill hope and not fear. And the reason Paul says it and the reason I bring it as an application is ultimately because this is not a fair fight. Praise the Lord, it's not a fair fight. The final rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness is not like the final ticket of a prize fight, that this is the two heavyweight champions of the world getting into the ring. And it's an epic cosmic struggle between good and evil where whoever wins is still going to emerge bruised and broken and bloody. No, we read that it's just the breath of Jesus that's going to put it to an end. And the reason for that as well is because Jesus already came and was bruised and was bloodied and was broken. But it wasn't because Satan won that battle either. It was because God the Father in His love and His mercy set His love upon His church. He chose to glorify His Son through His suffering in order that He would bring many sons to glory. So in the moment, it may have seen as victory for evil through the death of Jesus, but actually, it was the ordained means that God used to redeem his people and strike a death blow to the head of the serpent so that when Jesus comes back the second time, it's just going to take a breath. Satan is already a defeated enemy of God who will one day try to fling every resource he has at the supreme, already victorious God. And just like the cross was the ordained means that God used to redeem his people, the final rebellion and God's revelation of the man of lawlessness will be the means that God will use to bring his son back to quell the rebellion with merely a breath and his appearance. So take hope. A victorious God is on your side, so be still. God has won already, and we're to work and wait for that victory to culminate in Christ's return. And lastly, let's be reminded that God is sovereign. As we already mentioned, He has ordained the means at this time to restrain the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. It hasn't happened yet. And ultimately, His removal of that restraint 
is for the final blow of the rebellion to be struck against it. Satan himself does nothing independently. Read the beginning of Job. You'll be reminded of that. Nor does any man. So take heart. Because even evil, which is never approved by God, never condoned by God, but even evil will be used for his glory and for your good. Just look at the cross. Now, look forward to Christ's return. And see that God is worthy of our complete trust. Find your hope in his second coming. Allow those truths to take your, your ship of your life, which may feel tossed and turned right now, and re-moor it to the truth of Christ's return, the sovereignty of God. Satan is already defeated, and we're just waiting for the final culmination of God's victory at Christ's return. Let's pray. Father, we are ever grateful for you doing all of this for us. We don't deserve to be called your children. In and of ourselves, we don't deserve to be vindicated and be have justice done on our behalf. But because we're in Christ, because we're united to him, we have his righteousness. You see us through the lens of your son's merit. We are his brothers and sisters. We are your adopted children, your sons and daughters. Because of all that, you have given us this blessed hope. And would you cause this blessed hope, as Pastor Jonathan already implored us to, for us to be faithful to the means through which you, you continue to remind us of this hope. Our Bible reading, our time with you in prayer, our fellowship with believers. And so, may we pray like Paul, would you take every resolve that we have made for good, and through your power and through your grace, manifest those good resolutions into true works of faith so that we would be worthy of your kingdom, of the calling you placed on our lives. And may we work and wait in confidence for the final culmination of your kingdom with the coming of Jesus. May we not be driven to speculation and fear, but hope. And so in Christ's name we pray. Amen.